Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and on today's show, we're keeping up with the Joneses. No, not David Jones, but we'll look at doing travel in style with Anne Catherine Jones. We'll then look at a cheap way of looking like you are dressed for success, particularly if you're a woman with Dean Jones, the CEO of Glam Corner. And then we'll um, scare the pants off you this guy's name isn't Jones, by exposing how exposed we are to cyber criminals. And we'll do that with John DePeters from Cyber and Technology Industry Practice, well, a cyber and technology insurance business called Chubb. That's the show for today. And without any further ado, let's go to our first guest, Anne Catherine Jones of Travel Associates. Thanks for joining us on the show, Anne Catherine Jones. Oh, lovely to be here. So tell us, Anne Catherine, Travel Associates, what's the the history? Uh, Well, Travel Associates is um, one of the subsidiary companies of Flight Centre Travel Groups, which everybody knows. About 20 years ago, um, Greg Ashmore had a vision to go off on his own and actually um, start up his own boutique agency and was going to leave the company. But... um, Graham Turner, the CEO, basically got wind of what was going on and thought it was a good idea and asked him to stay within the family and um, develop the business from there. And that's where Travel Associates run from. Okay, so you know how Qantas developed Jetstar to be like maybe, you know, a, 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 a different grade of travel. Is Travel yes. Associates like the high-end version of Flight Centre? A hundred percent. Although we do do everything, we still get access to the amazing airfares that we um, that Flight Centre has access to around the world. Yeah. But also, um, we have what we call a bit of more of a high touch service. So mm. we're a little bit more specialised in what we do. We do book a lot of the pointy end of the. Um, aircraft yep. that, are, that are departing from everywhere around the world. But also what we like to do is really tailor-make itineraries to, for our clients. So we have a little bit more time to spend with them because we're either off-site in beautiful offices or we're in gorgeous sort of boutique um, premises all around Australia. So uh, basically uh, we invite people... Sorry. Yeah, go on. Oh, so we can, we can actually take the time. We're, we're by appointment generally... Um, most days, and we can actually sit down and take the time to work out what it is the cl- our clients are wa- are wanting to do on their on their holidays. And I guess you would appeal to a lot of business clients as well, because I know when people travel overseas and the hotel doesn't have the uh, the, the booking, it's nice to be able to ring someone up and say, "Can you fix this up?" A hundred percent. We do do a lot of um, smaller corporates mm. and basically people people that are in business themselves, they're either small business owners or they're in sort of niche industries themselves and they want something a little bit different. So they, they come to us generally for the airfares and then they are quite delighted because they go away with a full experience basically because we can add everything on for them as well. Okay. So, yeah. so what are the trends you're seeing in travel right now? 
Well, from a destination perspective, um, and this has actually really surprised me, I have been noticing more people going to Northern Africa, um, Egypt and Morocco in particular, and Oman is making a bit of a comeback as well. It was a bit of a hot spot years ago when Qantas first went by Dubai and then fell off the radar, but now people are definitely wanting to get to Oman and Jordan and see all the the amazing things that are there. Mm. So it's definitely making a comeback. Um, Italy is pretty much perennial, but we're finding that people who have been to Italy before are starting to explore other regions of Italy. So Puglia and Sardinia are Mm. definitely hotspots there at the moment. And I would say Europe in general, um, everywhere from Norway to Greece and everything in between. Really very strong. Yeah, look, as people listen to you, they both love you and hate you simultaneously because we all want to be where you're talking about. How the, the travel industry has changed over the last five to ten years, you, you, you've obviously seen it. What are the big changes? Oh, obviously there's a technology front to it. So the, the rise of the internet has been huge for the industry. Um, it's so funny, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, I don't even know how travel agents exist, um, I think I'd be a millionaire. However, I'd like to think that we've sort of evolved alongside of it. Our clients are very well researched. They have a general idea of what they're after, probably from the internet. But the flip side of that is that they're quite confused by it all. Um, so they come to us to sort of narrow things down to it and also take it away from being a transactional process to a little bit more of a a process with human connections. Um, So that's been really um, amazing. And I think in the last five years in particular, most travel agents and travel agencies are um, doing what we call um, specialisation and niche. So if, you know, people are becoming specialists in different areas, like we've got a lady who specialises in wellness travel you know, yoga retreats, um, all the beautiful wellness places around the world. Um, We also, most agencies these days would have cruise specialists because of the rise in ocean and river cruising and people really want to speak to somebody that knows what, you know, what what it's all about and which cruise line would fit them the best. Um, And also, um, small group travel is becoming bigger. So people are niching in things like um, multi-generational travel, you know, grandma and granddad taking away all the kids and families on group holidays. Mm. We've definitely mm. seen a big rise in that as well. So it's been, yeah, it's been a pretty pretty good 10 years actually. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot more baby boomers actually doing what they promised they'd never do in their 20s and 30s, namely go on ships and, and do those sorts of things? <laughs> A hundred percent. However, we're actually seeing a lot more younger people, mm. and by young people, I'm sort of talking um, your Gen Xs and your Gen Ys that mm. are sort of hitting the fifties. Um, but there is, but what people don't seem to realise is that not, not one cruise line fits all. There's beautiful, beautiful expedition cruising. You can go up, you know, into um, places like Costa Rica, the Galapagos, you know, um, and even you can. Um, down the coast of Croatia on these really, really small, intimate vessels with maybe 24 to 100 passengers on board. Mm, okay. So cruising is not necessarily what people think it is, um, but we're hopefully we're opening their eyes you know, to, to the different options that are out there. I think it was in the 70s and 80s that people would say, uh, cruise ships, they're just RSLs and lease clubs on the water. 
Oh, and look, you know what? There's some that are still like that and there's <laughs> really? people that love it. There definitely are. There's definitely party cruises and yeah. all the things like that. Most of our clients probably would avoid that, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, however, cruising is very, very different. For example, there's one cruise line that is really renowned for its food at sea mm. um, and so for the real foodies and they never do the same itineraries year on year. So they're always going somewhere amazing um, and also have about 15 restaurants on board that are all with, you know, full of top chefs. So there's different experiences to be had at sea, definitely. Okay. So what factors do you think our audience should be considering when booking their next holiday? Well, I think if it's something that people – if it's a destination that's a little bit um, – in, in, like they're being inspired by a particular destination, but they don't know where to start. I think what they can do is, especially with travel associates, get on our website. We have um, quite a few consultants um, that are listed on there. Every consultant has a has a page on there, and it will actually show what people where people have been and where they're specialised in. So, for example, I get a lot of um, people come to me because I lived in Japan for a couple of years, years in the mid-90s. I was a golf caddy back in the day. Mm. Um, I know, randomly. Um, <laughs> and I do an awful lot of Japan simply because I have travelled the length and breadth of it. I know the rail system. I know what hotels. I've got great connections there. Mm. So um, people refer a lot of business to me. So if people haven't been to Japan, then it's, you know, there's obviously a level of trust immediately there. Um, for example, I've got one lady in my office and she has travelled the length of breadth of South America. She is absolutely the go-to person um, to give that. So maybe um, if they have never used a travel agent before or it's been a while, maybe they could get on and actually have a look and see if there's someone that they think that they could help them with because with technology it doesn't matter where your agent is these days they mm. could be in Perth but they could be specializing in for example Oman um, or some of our beautiful cruise specialists I mean there's we've got consultants that have been on oh, dozens and dozens of different cruises and cruise lines that would be able to help people I bet you they've got expanding waistlines on the food that on this boat is <laughs> unbelievable. One last question to you, and a lot of people sure. might be thinking because they've never ever used a, a travel consultant before. Do you pay mm -hmm. f for using a travel consultant, or does the travel get consultant get rewarded by the businesses, by the hotels and the the cruise lines that uh, get the business? Yeah, at this stage we still don't um, pay um, have service fee mm. if that's if that's what you're asking. Yeah, yeah. So I do know that look. I'm sure that there are some agencies out there that do have service fees at Travel Associates. We, we don't at this stage. We still operate under a, um, a commission structure, so we do get kickbacks from the airlines. But I have to say we're in TA, we're not driven by – we tend not to have you know, incentives or we really do try to get the perfect airline and the perfect fare and the perfect product um, hotels or whatever for the client and that's our priority and that's where I think we really do excel and we're a little bit different from other agents that might have you know, a reward scheme for selling a certain airline or you know, um, sometimes the websites will put a particular um, airline at the top of the list because that's the one that they're getting we're really not driven by that at all we're happy to sell everybody mm. um, as long as it's the right product for the client, basically. Yeah, Happy clients are the goal. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and Catherine Jones, thanks for joining us on the program. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. You know, someone who hasn't been on holidays this year, talking to anyone who talks about going to Europe or anywhere really makes me jealous. Anyway.
Let's get back to business. Are you investing for income but finding it difficult with the current interest rates? Join us at the Switzer Income Conference and Masterclass in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and hear from some of Australia's finest finance minds. On the day, they'll tell you how they're investing their money for income and show you how to navigate Dr. Phil Lowe's next interest rate cut decision. To purchase tickets today, head to www.switzerevents.com.au. I hope I see you there. My next guest has a troublesome name. Every time you hear this, this name, you'll instantly think of cricket. His name is Dean Jones, and he's the CEO of Glam Corner. Yes, and I will ask him about his cricket association. I can guarantee you that. Glam Corner is a really interesting business coming out of the share economy, and I think you'll find this a very interesting tale. Dean Jones, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks very much for having me, Pete. All right, so just tell us the history of Glam Corner. Yeah, sure thing. So my wife, Audrey, and I, uh, we founded this business back in 2012 uh, when we realized that the average Australian woman really only wears around one-third of what's in her wardrobe. Um, the other two-thirds kind of being the stockpile of items that she purchases for a single occasion and then never wears it again. Um, so not only did we realize that that's you know, a horrible thing for the environment, the amount of things that go into manufacturing clothing that never get used. But we realized also just for the end customer, that's just a really bad deal. It's almost like having to purchase a car for a single trip. You know, the amount yep. of clothing our customer buys and, and just gets a bad deal. We realized Fashion Mental could be a fantastic way to offer her a better solution and ultimately a better deal. That's really where we got started. Okay, so, so basically... Uh, I guess you've got to confess to the fact that you've probably thought of this idea of rent and return clothing, clothing services while you're drinking a whole lot of red wine, I presume. That was where the great idea came from. <laughs> anyway, that's actually, it's not too far from the thing. <laughs> we, um, <laughs> we, we, we were brainstorming how could you solve this problem better. Yeah. Um, and the sharing economy, you know, collaborative consumption, was becoming, back then, 2011, 2012, it was still in its infancy in a lot of ways. You know, Uber was still only just getting started, at least in Australia anyway. Um, Airbnb was a great way to kind of um, get better value uh, as part of your holidays. And a lot of a lot of people we knew were starting to stream their music because why, why pay for all these CDs of music which, you know, that you're going to own for the rest of your life and you really only want to listen to it for a few times. Um, and we thought perhaps that, that same concept could be applied to the customer's wardrobe. Mm. Um, yeah, and that, that's where the idea came from, that we really validated by just talking to people that we knew. And it turned out our customer has been sharing clothing her entire life um, with her close friends and her family mainly, people yep. who are her side. Yep. But our, our customer actually finds a way to manufacture a better deal for herself and get, get a bit of access to better quality brands um, without the burden of ownership, by kind of swap buying and selling it amongst her immediate kind of friend group. We realized if we had the largest wardrobe in the country, we could kind of be that friend mm. for every woman in Australia. Mm. And that's, that's when we realized that could, be, that could be really meaningful. So you started off in 2012 with 40 dresses, I'm told. Now, how many dresses do you have now? That's correct. So that was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a few dozen, three, three or four dozen. Uh, dresses when we started. We now have over 18,000 articles. 
Okay. All right. So, do people tend to buy the you know, well, higher? I guess you or rent to be more precise. Do they rent it online or do they show up and try on? Oh, it's a purely online direct business. Has always been since uh, its very beginnings. Um, mainly because it's a young business, we didn't even have any of the capital to even consider a retail strategy, a physical retail strategy. So we decided to build it online direct. And again, this is 2011, 2012. Even somewhat a pioneer like the Iconic was still very uh, early days. Mm. Our customers um, can rent from us like they can from any other, like they purchase from any other online store. Um, with the, the addition of, it's sort of like uh, in the hotel bookings and travel bookings industry. Um, we've had to kind of leverage different design elements from those industries, but it's still got to be familiar to our customer. But instead of booking a, ho- a hotel room, she's booking an article of clothing that she wants at a certain date. And she can do the math right there and then and see that, well, she's essentially only paying for what she uses and then gives it back. Mm. And that tends to be a fraction of the retail cost, which goes to show how much value is left on the table by the end customer. Um, in buying something she knows she's only going to wear a couple of times anyway. What, what has been the reaction of well-known labels that you ultimately want to stock in your business because they're well-known labels and women want to wear them? Oh, yeah. And this was a really important thing early on. Um, early on, and we were, we were fashion mentally becoming more and more mainstream in Australia and abroad. But back in 2012, this was a very novel concept to a lot of designer brands. Mm. Um, and so some of them were a little gun-shy at first. However, we were able to, in a short period of time, show that the, these brands, that our customer was actually never buying their product at the retail level for five, six, seven hundred dollars $700 a unit. You know, our customer was shopping at H&M, Zara, Topshop, big, you know, international fast fashion names. Our customer's price point was 79 89 99 kind of per purchase decision. And we realized um, we can show these brands that through Fashion Mental, we can make their brand accessible and the, the quality of their products accessible to a totally new audience, but at a fast fashion price point, a price point that customer is more familiar with. Mm. So it's incremental revenue to these brands. It's like if you were an artist and you didn't want to make some content for Spotify, for YouTube. Yeah, it's just another channel. Mm. Um, and so when a lot of the brands realize that, that it's incremental revenue, um, they start seeing it as an opportunity. Um, we've even gotten to the point now, because, you know, our open to buy is now in the multi-million. We buy millions of dollars of worth of inventory from the local fashion industry every year now, um, to the point where we're actually collaborating with some of the brands to design our own exclusive products that are not only exclusive um, to rental, so you couldn't buy them if you tried, they're exclusive just to Grand Corner with mm. these very high-end brands. So they're our equivalent of, like, Netflix originals. And you know? um, yeah. All right, Dean, so, you know, um, does it mean then that these um, high-end fashion uh, companies... Um, do do you actually buy from them, or do you rent from them as well and on rent? Uh, no, so we buy direct wholesale 
from the brand. Okay. Um, and we, we ventured out in our So we're fundamentally, we're an asset leasing business. Mm. Run in the same way like any other lending business would be, from money to sleep leasing. Yeah. It's the same thing. So go yeah. get buys cars, you buy dresses, and you rent them out. What about your exactly. re- what about your retail rivals? Do they say, oh, gee, I wish these guys weren't doing this? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the retail, especially the Aussie retail industry, is fiercely competitive. Um, and, and you know, there's a lot of great local names and big international names competing in our part of the world. Um, we have always built, you know, an interesting position for ourselves. So, you know, any way we can help introduce our customer to a lot of fantastic local brands. Mm. Sometimes I think a lot of the local retailers also consider that being a good thing. Uh, because, you know, especially when it comes to local Aussie designer brands, Australia really punches above its weight, and a lot of retailers stock these brands. So anything that helps introduce those brands to a bigger audience is ultimately really good for them. So, um, yeah, I think locally we're seeing, you know, we always just try to stay focused on our customers. So we, we try to stay customer-focused and not competitor-focused. Mm. Um but I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if, if what happens in Australia is what we're seeing in the US, where even someone like a Bloomingdale has opened up their own fashion rental uh, service. And you're talking about a very uh, established department store business, um, yeah. getting into fashion rental. Like people like Urban Outfitters. Um, you know, I think you'll, you'll see more of it. I think whether, whether, we're really trying to push the tip of the spear forward. But yeah. I think in the coming years, Ultimately, because of what the end customer wants, you will see fashion rental going a lot more mainstream than I think some people would have expected. And have you ventured into the very scary area for women called shoes? Oh, shoes. Shoes <laughs> is a. We haven't. We haven't. Um, <laughs> we, we stock everything from floor length gowns to workwear now. Yeah. Um, anything that our customer um, has in her wardrobe that she finds she's not getting enough use out of, we tend to buy it and rent it out instead. Yeah. But shoes, first of all, I think shoes is probably a part of our customers' closet where you get decent yeah. value. Not always the best value, but you don't own, you don't tend to buy a pair of shoes and only wear them once. Yeah, Whereas true. With clothing, especially occasion dresses, yeah. that's exactly what happens. You get a little bit more value for money out of shoes. Plus, there's a bit of a, I think there's a bit of a personal barrier in terms of hygiene yeah. um, and even just sizing. Shoe sizing, anyone who knows online women's um, footwear, yep. like a, a millimetre of difference, and you've got a guaranteed refund that it's agony for the customer. Yeah. So we've, we've picked our battles, Pete, yeah. and shoes, I guess shoes are sat on the side for now. Dan, I've got to say, I find women the most courageous group of people in the world. Some of the shoes they wear for fashion, <laughs> they certainly die for oh, yeah. fashion, those, those poor women. One last question, mate. Where is this business going to go? What's the future trajectory for Glam Corner? Yeah, well, I think we're really riding away. We've been very blessed. I mean, we have over 100 employees now. We are processing about 50 to 60 tons of clothing a month. And that is that is 50 times what it was only three or so years ago. Yeah. I think um, I think we're going to see a lot of mainstream adoption of fashion rental in a lot of different forms in Australia in the coming years. And we have the US to look to as a precedent there. And it's driven by, uh, amongst probably a bunch of other maybe macroeconomic factors, it's the end customer. The end customer has a bit of fatigue. She's got a lot of things building up in her, her wardrobe 
but she never gets full value out of. And it creates a lot of guilt and anxiety in her life. Um, when she discovers that she can have access to fantastic products for a fraction, a fraction of the price and kind of swap out her style and experiment with her style without the burden of ownership, that's just the better, the best product we win at the end of the day. So I think if, the end, if it's giving the end customer a better deal, the end customer is going to drive that change. And where I've got a front row seat to that, and I see that happening at a, at a faster rate than I've seen it in seven years in the business. Well, certainly you're going to do a lot for a lot of uh, women's cash flow, that's for sure. Look, uh, Dean Jones, thanks so. for joining us on the show, mate. It's a very good story. Thanks very much. Get on you, Pete. Thanks very much, mate. And that was Dean Jones, not the cricketer, but the guy who, who with his wife, started Glam Corner. Now, uh, if you're kind of interested in being richer rather than poorer, let me give you a good idea. For $24.95, that's a pretty low outlay, you can change your life from being maybe heading towards poverty, but instead, as an alternative, heading towards getting richer. All you have to do is buy my book called Join the Rich Club. And if you do that, I think you'll be impressed. You go to switzerstore.com.au. The price is $24.95. And if I can't make you richer, bring it back to me and I'll give you your money back. I don't think there's anything more scary nowadays being in business than the possibility of being hacked or having your data stolen by some lowlife in the cloud or wherever those lowlives live. Now, a business that's actually designed to make sure people in business in particular are protected is uh, a business called Chubb. It's not the safe company, it's the insurance company. Uh, and, and my next guest is John DePeters, and he'll tell us about how exposed we are in this scary internet world. John DePeters, welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. Good to be here. Now, you, you come from Chubb, and I think a lot of us listening would be thinking, Chubb, you know, we see them on safes everywhere in this country, uh, but you're not in the safe business at all. We're not. Uh, yeah, common uh, misconception, I suppose, uh, here in Australia. Uh, uh, we are the, a global insurance company, uh, so businesses all around the world in the insurance business, uh, not, the, not the safe business. Yeah, but you're in cyber and technology industry practice. Why is an insurance company in that? Yes, yeah, cyber insurance is a, is a growing line of insurance. Um, it's not a traditional property and casualty line. It's not uh, fire insurance or, or public liability. Yeah. It's, a, it's a line of business that covers, uh, pr provides protection for cyber attacks, cyber incidents, and increasing exposure uh, to technology. Ten years ago, we wouldn't even thought an insurance company had to protect us from that kind of threat, but it's huge now, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It actually, surprisingly, has actually been uh, an insurance product for about 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so Chubb's been providing cyber insurance now for, for over 20 years. Um, and over time, as you can imagine, it's it's grown quite considerably. Yeah. It's now really a, a fundamental insurance product for most businesses. Yeah, and I, I would have thought Big business would have needed it first because they're really embracing the computer world. But now SMEs, they're living on the internet and therefore they are really vulnerable to cybercrime. Absolutely. Uh, it was most definitely uh, created for large businesses in their exposure to uh, their online activities, uh, to internet media, 
uh, and what that meant for them really primarily from a liability perspective. Uh, so the, the liabilities they could incur from their online activities. Uh, over time, it's really developed to a, a product where today it's uh, providing full-fledged incident response cover uh, to respond to incidents and, and not just the potential to be sued effectively uh, from online behavior. Okay. We know there's, what, 96% of all registered businesses are SMEs. Um, I still think a lot of them wouldn't even think about getting insurance for cybersecurity. What percentage at this point in time, are roughly, of SMEs, are they taking out insurance for this unbelievably growing threat? Yeah, in the survey we see that about 27% respond, uh, indicating that they purchase cyber insurance. Mm, that's bigger than I would have thought. Yeah, it is. There, there's another percentage there that actually responds that they don't know what cyber insurance is. <laughs> that's right. So we, we factor that in, and yeah. so it probably wouldn't be 20% of the, 7% of the whole pie. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a decent number. It's mm -hmm. certainly growing uh, exponentially yeah. uh, as the years go on. We see cyber insurance as really one of the, the growth engines in insurance mm -hmm. uh, for good reason. How much does it cost a typical SME to get coverage? These days, it's it's quite inexpensive. Yeah, it's uh, a it, good thing to say. It, it, <laughs> it is. Uh, it's increasingly um, affordable, yeah. really. So, well under a thousand dollars, you can purchase solid uh, cyber insurance coverage, yeah. um, which provides, you know, like I said, a really important service in incident response. Yeah. Really, a practical service uh, that can can be really effective and important in the event that something does occur. Is the price of the insurance linked to the size of your turnover? It is, yeah. in part. Yeah. Uh, it's also linked to the extent of your activities handling mm -hmm. data. How vulnerable you are. How vulnerable, how yeah. vulnerable, vulnerable yeah. you are, yeah. uh, and, and certainly the amount of data that you, you really process. Yeah. Do you think a lot of businesses don't realize how vulnerable they are. Well, I won't use that word again, <laughs> how exposed they are. Yeah. Um, and therefore, they don't know the potential costs and risks to their brand name and also to their bottom line. Absolutely. Um, we see in the survey clearly that there is a, an overconfidence, probably related to the misunderstanding that, that, that this, thing, this type of exposure exists for these businesses. Yeah. Um, and so we see a, a misunderstanding about the obligations small businesses have to report incidents. Mm. Uh, we also see that uh, very few of them actually understand that they have a high likelihood. Uh, in fact, within the survey, we see one in two businesses actually suffers a cyber incident uh, in a given year. Um, so that likelihood of being breached versus the perception, uh, there, there's a real mismatch. And so. What is the, the most um, dangerous point for a small business in terms of hackers or any interrupters getting into the business? Where is it coming and what is the big mistake they're making? It's primarily employees. Uh, the, the weakest link, unfortunately, is often the employee who clicks on a phishing link. That's phishing, you know, P-H. Um, a phishing link, which is a common form of attack for, for a hacker to access a business. Yeah. Uh, it's often poor passwords, you know, employees reusing their passwords for personal accounts and their work account. 
uh, when, when there's a breach to, a, say, a, a website um, that leads to that password being exposed, that password's then used against businesses. Uh, so that's a common, the employee and the human element is a, is a really common uh, mm. form of penetration for the actor. I presume it's mainly, it's mainly coming through email because that's where the, the inducement is always there. I, I nearly sometimes click on something and I think, hang on, there's no way in the world the ATO's contacting me through email. No, there's no way in the world my bank, but I'm in this business. A lot of normal people could easily respond to a, is a, a phishing, what do you call it? That's right, phishing. Yeah, yeah. P, yeah. P-H. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not the, uh, the the normal type of phishing that yeah. most would, would think about. But most of these emails are quite fishy. They, they are. <laughs> they absolutely are. Yeah. Um, and they're increasingly sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So they'll often come at a time when it's known the employee will be commuting. Yeah. So they'll come on the mobile phone where it's less, you know, it's it's more difficult to identify that as a as a malicious email. Yeah. Um, and they look quite real. They're they're becoming quite, um, it's, it's really quite a challenge to see what is you know, potentially fraudulent and what's real. So mm. um, training employees on how to identify these emails uh, and not to click on that link is, is such a crucial control for any business of mm. any size to have. Yeah. Um, do you guys provide a service, you know, before you actually provide the policy to assess just how exposed or vulnerable, is that word again, a business is? Because some businesses will have really low exposure to, to cyber attacks. But if you're a financial planning business or an accounting business, there's just so much great stuff that hackers or criminals would love to get access to. Yeah, so we, we assess first based on the industry. So as you say, there are certain industries, uh, financial planning, fi- financial institutions generally, uh, where we would, before we even start, identify that as an industry that we know suffers incidents yeah. uh, at, a, at a, say, a higher rate than others. Uh, then we look the next step further into the potential severity of, of the issue. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, we're there looking at uh, their control framework. So um, we're trying to understand, does a business do the basic things that we know are, are critical, um, like these cultural training, password management. We're trying to assess, importantly, the culture of the business. Mm. Um, from a services standpoint, as we go up the ladder into large, mid and, and, and larger account uh, type business, we do offer a more extensive services proposition before the incident occurs. Mm. But even for small businesses, we now offer uh, complementary services that assist in, again, things like password management, where all of our policyholders have access to important services uh, that they can take advantage of. Just listening to you, um, John, is it possible that bad practices by one of your customers can actually, in a sense, infect your system? Hmm. I, I suppose that's possible. Yeah. Um, any business, just like our own, has hmm. exposure to anyone that, that we're, we're dealing with, yeah. quite frankly. And yeah. so whether that's email communication, uh, vendors are, a, are an incredibly important component of any risk management uh, framework. So assessing your, your, your vendors that you deal with for their own security mm. practices is quite important, especially when you think about things like the cloud, 
um, IT providers where you're relying on those businesses to have strong security yeah. because uh, often a, an attack starts with those providers because the actors know that they can access thousands of businesses potentially through a third-party provider. Mm. So absolutely, it's a common issue that we face, which is a business thinks that they're fully across their cyber you know, risk management and they've got their perimeter you know, very secure. Mm -hmm. But so much of this is outside of their control. Yeah, I, I can imagine my in-house accountant opening up an email if it came from our very best customer who maybe owed us a lot of money and that she was anticipating that the email was saying that the check has been you know, put in the mail or the electronic transfer has happened. You can imagine that happening. And so I guess the bottom line is when people go looking for insurance cover, if you have a really good level of protection, does your premium then reflect that? Definitely. Uh, there's an underwriting process that uh, will essentially reward uh, those businesses that have best, you know, the best controls. So if we are assessing a business that you know, frankly has very weak controls in all of these, even some basic areas, the premium would, would reflect that. Uh, and as you move into stronger controls and it's evident that a business is uh, culturally, again, very much across the importance of this issue, um, all the way to the more technical solutions like software and firewalls and antivirus and things like that. Um, when we see those things in place, of course, that's, that's factored into the, into the underwriting. Well, John, the internet is a wonderful thing, but gee, it has brought some extra costs, hasn't it? It sure has. John, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. And that was John DePeters from Chubb. As you can see, we are very heavily exposed when it comes to the internet, and it'd be a really good idea if you don't want to be um, um, taken to the cleaners by some low life in the internet world, that you actually check out that you are actually cyber protected. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.